People think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, we're going to go back in time on this Ooh, show. Yes. Beach I, uh, Boys, uh, Mary Poppins. No, Mary Poppins. No. Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary. No. We're going to go back to the early days in dialysis and what it was like when they decided who shall live and who shall die for people who had kidney disease. That's where they had the, like, the rat in the wheel that made the machine go and everything? I, they had all kinds of contraptions back then. But today we're going to be talking to a person who wrote a play named Christopher Meeks called Who Lives. And what's so interesting about this is I saw this play performed live nine years ago, and I was fascinated by the play. I thought, wow, this is just... People need to understand the history of how dialysis started. Because I know, it really is a bizarre it's, history. It's it, fascinating. Know? So yeah, Christopher Meeks, he wrote this play um, called Who Shall Live? And it tells the story of a, a, a set in the early 60s of a man named Gabriel Hornstein who needs a new treatment called dialysis. Gabriel Hornstein. Gabriel Hornstein. I wonder if he's Jewish or not. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, dialysis isn't ready available back then. So um, he needs to break through the special committee so he can be accepted to go on the dialysis machine and to live. So I think a lot of people out there listening don't realize how many people had to pave the way for us to, you know, have dialysis available. And they didn't know anything about these special committees that were exactly. not doctors, not professionals, but just everyday people. It could have been a carpenter, a plumber, and a housewife. And they made the decision of whether you were going to live or die because they only gave dialysis to certain people. Exactly. So when we come back, we're going to talk to Christopher Meeks, and he's going to tell us all about his play and how he even came to write about this topic. Hi, folks. Crazy Kidney Kid here to tell you about the incredible specials we're having. We are definitely wheeling and dealing this weekend. If I can't put you in a proper access, a lifeline like me and the missus like to call them, then I'll stand on my head and eat a low-sodium bug. First, we have a Crazy Kidney Kid special on hemodialysis access with several different models. We have catheters great for the beginners or in any emergency, but you'll soon want to move up to a more sporty model. Next, we have the AV graft, a good utility access. But believe me, sweet folks, I have saved the best for last, the fistula. This is the access that everyone is talking about. You'll get great mileage and years of use with this baby. What's that you say? Hemo just doesn't fit the lifestyle you prefer, PD? Well, feast your eyes on this baby. Oh, I forgot this is radio. You'll just have to trust me on this one, folks. This is the PD catheter model. Beautiful, efficient, and easily hidden from view. So take your pick. We're dealing all week. We'll really have to move these babies. Keep your access clean and free of infection. A daily check for signs of redness and warmth could indicate infection. Check with your health care team for tips on how to keep your dialysis access clean and safe for use. And remember, if I can't put you in one of these lifelines, I'll stand on my head and eat a low-sodium bug. He said, I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds. On a bull named Blue Mansion And I love deeper And I spoke 
said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. And welcome, Christopher Meeks, playwright, scholar, poet. What else are you? <laughs> Professor. You're a professor? Where are you a professor? I'm teaching at USC, Santa Monica College, Art Center College of Design and CalArts. Wow, you teach at a lot of places. And you're also at the Glendale Galleria, too, on Saturdays, right? <laughs> Making Orange Julius. <laughs> oh, Fantastic. I'm so impressed now. He's a USC professor. I know. I feel really We're... stupid. <laughs> like, I'm going to ask him, like, is this a book or a play? You know, I don't know what to say. It's great. Now, where did you get the idea to write this play. I've been writing, I don't know, 25, 30 years now. And a friend of mine was a TV movie producer. She found an article in Life magazine, 1964, about the very first committee, Mm -hmm. about the very first dialysis machine that worked. And she was so taken with the, the medical ethics of it. It was really the first medical ethics committee. Uh, The doctors realized that here's an artificial kidney machine. It could save 10 to 12 people. And according to the Life magazine article, they were daunted by this. Like, who? Who are they going to choose? Who are they going to choose? And so the doctors selected an anonymous committee, people whose names weren't known, ordinary people who had come up with their own parameters of what constitutes a real life. And these were people from the community, right? Just Co- there was Seattle a housewife, community. there was a priest, is that correct? I a don't minister, know who the other yeah. characters were. Um, but, yeah, they were just average people who had no medical knowledge. Now, why did they choose people with no medical knowledge? Because those people are not going to know whether who has a better opportunity to live and who doesn't. The doctors felt that let's let ordinary people figure out what makes a valuable life, which is what mm-hmm. really grabbed me, even though they didn't quite realize this average group, that they were deciding on, you know, the big question we all have is why are we here? You know, what's our worth? Do mm-hmm. we have worth? Uh, they were deciding that, and I was fascinated. This is the 60s, you have to realize, early 60s, before feminism. Mm-hmm. You know, the man wanted, would still go off to do the work. The wife stayed home. That was typical. So the man was really more valuable than the woman, Well, correct? right there. That uh, was one of the the issues. That was one of the issues. They I'm were the breadwinners. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I wasn't even sure what the original committee decided because they were anonymous and there was only this article. But it gave me the freedom to say, you know, I'd love to have been there, and I bet they talked about these things. Mm-hmm. Also, it had to be relevant for today, and I brought in some issues that we're still wrestling with, women's place in all of this, and art versus a job like accounting or something. Tell us about the play. What's the setting? Um, who are the characters? What is the plot? Uh, the setting's 1960s Seattle. It's the, the main set. Well, there's two main areas in the play. Uh, one is a committee room mm-hmm. with the committee already selected. Uh, and the other area is Gabriel Hornstein's home with his wife, Margaret. Uh, and he's an attorney, right? He's is that an attorney. Correct? Good memory. He's mm-hmm. an attorney. I remember that. Uh, My God, how unusual, a Jewish attorney. <laughs> in Seattle. <laughs> that's bizarre. I mean, that's Did he have a raincoat, already. too? <laughs> well, you know, I happen to think of Roy Cohn, you know, as someone who, who 
I, I guess, is a famous Jewish attorney who really pushed the envelope of, of uh, ethics in his own way with being on the House or at least influencing the House uh, on American activity, HUAC. At any rate, I thought I want to have someone really on the edge who's not necessarily mm-hmm. likable, who finds out he has kidney disease, finds out that this committee turned him down, mm-hmm. assumes they turned him down because he's Jewish, and he's someone who's not going to take no for an answer and hunts down this anonymous committee and tries to convince them, let me live. And they say, you know what? We'll let you live if you join the committee and help us decide who lives or dies, which then becomes his own quandary. Uh, I I found it fascinating. Well, it's almost like, you know, it's kind of like Nazi Germany, where, you know, they made some of the Jews work in the concentration camp and be guards um, among other Jews. I love plays and stories that, that, that throw in ethics. Uh, remember Sophie's Choice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's another movie called, and we're going on well, to the, movies now. I know. Well, well, I was thinking about 12 Angry Men. I love that movie. Well, this is exactly what was in my mind, 12 mm-hmm. Angry Men. It's a reverse 12 Angry Men is the way I looked at it. 12 Happy Men. Well, <laughs> well they were choosing, made... <laughs> was this person going to die or not? Yes. And the reverse is, is this person going to live or not? Right, exactly. Right. And I mean, you, this you is have a, essentially a jury deciding... Is this person worthy or not? He didn't. Com- no one committed crimes here, but they committed choices of their life. You know, is a man more valuable than a woman? That comes up. So <laughs> we need to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Christopher Meeks and more mm-hmm. about the play and about these people who are on the committee. So now, we'll- I want to ask you something. When you say a quick break, how, how long would that be? Well, I think we have two commercials, and we have probably an ass nephrologist, so maybe like three to four minutes. So I could read a few pages of yes, this during... Yes, you could read oh, a couple perfect. pages and come back. Perfect, I can get to see it. I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Hi, I'm Aaron Kinsley, and I'm a kidney patient just like you. I had no idea I was on the road to end-stage renal failure. As we know, there really is no clear sign when your kidneys start to fail. So I urge you to tell your relatives and friends, especially those who are 65 and older, to get a simple blood test to see if they are at risk for kidney failure. The glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, will tell them how well their kidneys are functioning. If their kidneys are failing, you and their doctor can share the many different ways they can live with kidney disease. As we know, it's not fun to find out you have kidney disease, it's even less fun to die from it. And now it's time to ask the nephrologist. What happens to me if I don't follow the prescribed renal diet? And here's Dr. Alan Nissenson with the answer. Well, let's think about what dialysis does. Dialysis has two critically important functions. It removes fluid and it removes lots of toxins. 
So if we keep that in the back of our mind and think about the fact that dialysis is going on only about 12 hours a week, it obviously has a limited capacity to remove water and to remove toxins. So if there is excessive drinking of water that exceeds the ability of dialysis to remove it, you slowly gain water. And what does that do? It makes you short of breath. It gives you swelling of the legs. Fluid fills up in your lungs. And it raises your blood pressure. All of those things that dialysis can't fix unless it can remove all the water. And again, it only has a limited capacity to do that. Um, on the toxin side, everything you eat, everything in food, contains all kinds of chemicals, minerals, lots of things that are really good for you, but only in the right quantity. And again, the beauty of normally functioning kidneys is that they have almost an infinite capacity to adapt to what we do. So if you decided to go crazy one day, if you had normal kidneys, and just sit in your room and eat 50 bananas over an hour, absolutely nothing would happen to you. And in fact, bananas, which contain a lot of potassium, if I were to measure your blood potassium every 10 minutes during your banana orgy, it would hardly change at all. And that's largely due to the adaptive ability of the kidneys. They just get rid of potassium almost instantly. Unfortunately, since dialysis is only being done every other day or so and only for a few hours, it can't adapt like that. It has a fixed capacity to remove all of these toxins. So if you stick with roughly the amount that the machine can remove, things stay steady and everything's fine. As soon as you exceed that, these toxins begin to build up in your body and then you can have bad complications, the most common of which is just feeling sick and don't feel well, the worst of which is that the particular blood potassium can abruptly go up and that can be fatal because it causes the heart to, to malfunction. So following the diet as unpalatable and unpleasant as it can be, unfortunately is critically important with the current way we do dialysis. Now, if we did dialysis more frequently, as some people have suggested might be a good idea, five, six, seven days a week, then there would be an ability to eat a more normal diet because the ability of the treatment to remove the water and the toxins would be much greater. So that's one potential advantage of more frequent dialysis is that it would allow a bit more normal diet. The Ask a Nephrologist segment of this program is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition. The Renal Support Network and the Renal Physicians Association make no representations or warranties and provide no guarantees of any kind as to the accuracy of any information provided during the Ask a Nephrologist segment. And we're back with Christopher Meeks, but his friends call him Chris. Did you know that? <laughs> I know. He told me I could call Better him Chris. He said you can call him Chris? Yes, he said I could call him Chris. <laughs> he told me I had to call him Mr. Meeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have more charm than you, Steve. Uh, what can I say? Tell us about this play, how it got started, where it first performed, and where it's at now. Well, the first production was here in Los Angeles at the 24th Street Theater, which is really weird because it's on 39th Street. So uh, uh, the it, 24th Theater is on 39th Street. Yes, that's why nobody could find that? it. I nobody know. could find the no, theater. No, it's on 24th Street, right near USC. <laughs> uh, and the woman who gave me the article from Life Magazine, when she read it, she no normally produces uh, TV movies. 
she said she wanted to produce this as a play. And I had been a theater critic with uh, Daily Variety at the time. I'd seen, you know, hundreds of plays by that point. And one of the directors I most adored was a woman named Debbie Devine of the 24th Street mm-hmm. Theater. And yeah, that's the wrong answer. He's talking to a director, and he says, one of the best directors. I, had, I thought he was going to say Stephen <laughs> first. <laughs> All right, but go on. Go on with the story on, anyway. Theater director. I'll, uh, you know, I'll ignore that. Go on. All right. And uh, so I brought Brenda and Debbie together. They instantly wanted to work together. Uh, somehow John Plachette came in to audition for Gabriel. We all loved him, and it just all fell in place. And uh, Debbie's just an, a dynamic director. Okay. And How long did it take you to write this play? This is one of the few pieces that, that just sort of came at me as if from above. Mm-hmm. I came up with the characters. Because this was a moral piece, I just came up with one moral dilemma after another. And I knew the characters, and I just went and see where they went. You know, I was, for instance, intrigued by, wouldn't it be interesting to have a woman who's in grad school who's on the cusp of being a feminist? She doesn't Mm -hmm. quite know it yet, but uh, she's pushing this issue of why no women. Later on, why they have to decide between a first violinist from the Seattle Symphony Mm -hmm. or an accountant from Boeing. And, and who's worth more? Who's worth more? Right. People made these decisions, and people that are, you know, that are living today are as a result of this committee. Their descendants are here, and other people just didn't get a chance to pursue their life because this committee said no. Said no. I know, for instance, diabetics were totally disqualified. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes. And in fact, one of the characters during the uh, dialysis treatment becomes diabetic. They have to saw off his legs and. He wants to die at that point, and then the committee is now having to decide, hold it. He agreed to, to right. be on this machine, and we want to see what happens to people all the way to the end. And he didn't want it. He didn't want and the treatment. And he didn't want to do it. And now the committee had to decide, do we take him off? How far do we let him go? If we chop off all his limbs, is that okay to let right. him die? Or does he have to go in a coma? You know, these are... And how do you do this on the stage? I mean... It, this sounds like a movie rather than a... Well, it was v- very filmic. It's image-oriented. But see, a great theater director knows how to create images. But how many sets stage. would you have on a stage play? Uh, they did something that I didn't imagine, which turned out to be fabulous. Of course, they found a great set designer. They put it on a turnstile and this table that a circular table that the right. committee sat at then became hospital beds, then became uh, So when they turned, the, they turned the set, they would dress the next scene. And exactly. Then they, right. Yeah. And it gave stuff for the, the theater to watch between scenes because you'd watch all these actors change the table mm-hmm. yet again. What's it going to be now? Right. So it was very theatrical. And, and how many times has this been performed? It was just performed this one time because it got great reviews. Mm-hmm. I incredible remember. It reviews. was great. It was a great play. Uh, Seattle. I wanted the next production to be in Seattle where this took place. We even had a great director set, a guy named Craig Belknap. And Another director that's not mentioned, like Stephen First. <laughs> <laughs> He's mentioned two directors, not one of them me. 
Stephen has to send me stuff. <laughs> you haven't seen any of my films, have you? I have seen Basil your films, is which the is why I asked you where Stephen first the actor. Oh, I see. But you haven't seen any of my directorial films. I don't know just if I have. Yes. You'll it be was, reading was... my play after this, and I'll be looking at your films. Right, right. So we'll, we'll get to know each other and yes. go out to dinner. We'll, we'll take a meeting. We'll have yes. your people meet my people. Well, what were some of the reviews after the play? I'm trying to think of specifics. It's interesting being on the end of, of reviews when I had been a reviewer for seven years. My first play, which was called Suburban Anger, got a spectrum of reviews. Some thought I, I was a monster. Other people thought I was a genius. It's weird seeing that kind of thing. This one got great reviews all around. The one I'm remembering right now is there was a professor of gerontology at USC who came to see it, and he wrote this long, impassioned letter how he felt students, divinity students, as well as medical ethics students, students of all sorts, should see the play to wrestle with issues that are still valid today. It's like a microcosm of what's going on in the world right now. It is. Because you look at it and you think, wow, how did they have a committee and decided who shall live and who shall die? That happens every day in all kinds of scenarios. Maybe not this dramatic, but there are decisions made at higher levels. I mean, you think about people throughout the world, some people don't have food. Um, you know, what what you know, could we all change our behavior exactly. to make sure that uh, people in other parts of the country or the world have food? Um, I want people asking these questions right. when they left the play and when they leave it in the future. I didn't sit around to do a didactic piece that I'm, I'm, I'm forcing a, a moral point of view. Rather, I asked a lot of questions. People in the play take sides. Mm -hmm. There are not any easy answers th throughout the play. It's so complicated. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, all the issues we have nationally with health care and how, you know, some people have access to health care and some people don't, in a way, that is, is preventing them to even having care because they don't have access to it. So this is a small situation where they're choosing patients to have dialysis, but right now some people can't even, you know, they have to sit in an emergency room to get health care right now. Absolutely. And, you know, they're probably dying because they don't have access to health care. Hey, anyone who's gone to an ER sees that there's triage going on. Is this person need to be seen now, or can he or she wait? Well, it's prioritized. Prioritized. Right. And the same thing, you know, is... Now, I have a question. You mentioned something earlier. You said there were 12 patients. Now, yeah. is that just in your fiction piece, or is... It, was I, there... In the original uh, machine, I think there might have been 10. Oh, I knew there were at least 10. Whether it was 12 or not, I don't but know. But th that's all they could choose? Yeah. Is one machine. It was working 24 hours a day. That's oh, so there's one machine. Mm -hmm. So when someone was on it, plus in those early days, it wasn't as efficient as it is now. Now, how come they didn't make two machines? They, they wanted to one? see if it worked. They didn't, oh, they they didn't, didn't even know. know if it would. I see. What were the long-term effects of dialysis? They didn't know. They but didn't, didn't, when they even had more machines, they still made a selection process. Is that correct? Well, I think once they started, and I'm not absolutely sure, but I think once they started creating the machines, they were seeing this was working, they had another obstacle, who was going to pay for it? I mean, who was going to fund dialysis? And that's when in 1972, and I think the law was enacted in 73, was that they created the End Stage Renal Disease Act, which allowed all patients who have ESRD in the country 
to qualify for Medicare so that they could afford dialysis. Because the first hurdle was having the machines, but once they saw that it worked, there were people that wanted to come in and invest in it, but then they couldn't get investors because none of the patients could afford it. That's how um, the kidney community started, basically. Uh, you know, it, this is so interesting. I would love to see a production of this, to tell you I would truth. love to see a production. In fact, what I'm hoping your listeners might do is, first of all, buy a copy of the play from, say, Amazon.com. And if they like it, send a copy to your local theater. Say, here's an interesting play. Consider doing it. And you decided to waive all royalties for the play. Is that correct? <laughs> I, I'm just telling people to call Stephen first first to see if he'd Perfect. open up I'll the directing. I'll play, and you'll get free royalties, and I'll do it for free. And I got some costumes in my uh, garage. I'll be a kidney bean. It's, that's Perfect. <laughs> perfect. So thank you so much for coming in. I can't wait to read this and hopefully exploit it for all it's worth. Hello. Hey, Betty. Mary and I are going to lunch at that new Italian restaurant across from the mall. Dying to go to that place. I hear they got great salads. Then the three of us can do a little shopping across the street and just have a girl's day out. Mm, that sounds like fun. I can't wait. Meet us at 1230 at Tuscany's. Ugh. Wait a second. Today's Thursday. I've got dialysis. Just going early. Are you kidding? They are so strict about the times, and besides, they're all full all day. Maybe next time. I'll tell you about the restaurant and what Mary and I bought at the mall. Such a good friend. There's got to be a better way. Instead of next time, how about next stage? What Betty doesn't know is there is a better way. The Next Stage System 1, the first truly portable home hemodialysis machine, can help you take back your life and set your own schedule for home hemodialysis treatments. After a short training period for you and a partner, you have your own portable dialysis machine right in your own home. All of your supplies are delivered to your doorstep. Taking back your life and setting your own schedule are just part of it. Doing dialysis at home also allows for more frequent dialysis, which better imitates the function of a normal kidney. Many patients doing more frequent dialysis report that they have more energy and feel better. Want to travel? With your doctor's prescription, Next Stage can support travel anywhere in the continental U.S. The Next Stage machine is about the size of a 13-inch TV and has a sturdy travel case available, and all your supplies will be delivered to your destination. So schedule dialysis around your life instead of your life around dialysis. Ask your doctor if home hemodialysis with the Next Stage System 1 is right for you. For more information, call Next Stage at one 866 nxstage or visit www.nextstage.com. He said, I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Blue Mansion. And I looked deeper and I spoke sweeter and I gave forgiveness I've been denying. He said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. I'm still amazed by the history of kidney disease. It's so surreal to think that there were these committees. And I have this one vision in my mind, and it's a very popular picture, but it's like a black and white 
picture of, of a photo, a silhouette of all the committee members. And there's one woman on the committee and she's got a beehive hairdo. And I think to myself, wow, you know, women weren't making decisions back then like we are today. Go women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Women hear me roar. Give me my dialysis machine. But it'd be so cool to have different celebrities play those 12 people or the, the, the hidden, you know, you get Jack Nicholson to be a part and you know, and, and Meryl Streep can be the woman with the beehive, the beehive hair. hairdo. No, I think Glenn Close. Glenn Close. Glenn Close. That's who I would cast. Yes, yes. But um, if anybody wants to find out about this book, it's called Who Lives, a play by Christopher Meeks, and you can get it at Amazon.com, or you can go see his website at www.chrismeeks.com. My website is called Hot Dog Believe It or Not. That's my website. But people <laughs> don't get it because I'm Stephen First. I don't get it either. I don't either. So we'll say goodbye and we're going to go read this play. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. Renal Support Network would like to thank everyone who has made this show possible. Kidney Talk's founding sponsor is Amgen. Generous support is provided by Roche Pharmaceuticals and Astellas. Friends of Kidney Talk are Abbott Laboratories, American Region, and Fresenius Medical Care North America. Thank you for helping us stream health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. Visit rsnhope.org for more information. The opinions, recommendations, statements, and advice contained on Kidney Talk are for information only. You should not use the information on the show to diagnose or treat a health problem or disease without first consulting with a qualified health care provider. Please consult with your health care provider about any questions or concerns you may have regarding your condition or dietary regimen.